When my son Kelvin was just a little guy, one of my favorite things to do was to put him in the stroller and go for long walks. We'd go all the way to East Lansing from our home. We would go sometimes up to a number of different parks. And I would often take him to Frandor if I needed something from there. The, the stroller had like a big compartment at the bottom I could put groceries in. It was a lot of fun to be able to just zoom around with him. And one time, we were at Frandor and just kind of walking around. And there used to be a store there called Gift and Bible. Now, sadly, all of the Bible and Christian bookstores from Lansing are gone, and I've got to go to Flint or Grand Rapids for such things. But uh, at the time, there were two of them in Frandor. And we were walking by there, and we were about to go in, and I noticed that the front door, which was made of glass, tempered glass, safety glass, was broken, shattered. Someone seemed to have taken a brick or something and heaved it through the door. And I thought, oh, that is terrible. So there's a hole in it, and then the whole thing was kind of spider-webbed. And I was thinking to myself, why this store and not that store or that store? I'm wondering if it was religiously motivated vandalism. And as I was thinking, I saw Kelvin slowly reaching forward, leaning forward in the stroller to touch the broken glass. And I snapped to, and I grabbed his hand and said, no, don't touch that! And I thought for a minute that he might cry, But he didn't. He got really serious and said, you're right. No one should touch that until it's fixed. I said, really? How do you think they're going to fix this? And with just the sweetest, earnest little voice, he said, well, they'll call a glass fixer. The glass fixer will find all the pieces that go in this hole. They'll put it back and they'll glue it together. And I said, Calvin, that's very adorable. But here's a reality check for you. No one can fix this window. Even with all the technology we have, even though most of the broken pieces are still in place because of that plastic film there, there's no way that this thing is going to be fixed. They're going to have to take it all out and put a new window in its place. It is irreparably damaged. And he was like, irreparably, got it. (laughs) People wonder, it's a gamble talking to your little child like they're an adult, but it paid off. He's super smart now. But I said, it can't be fixed. It's completely broken. And he understood. He looked at it and he said, yeah, yeah, I understand. This thing, this thing is broken beyond hope. In our passage today, we see someone move to tears. Because not one window of one store in one city is broken, but everything is broken. The world is broken. And no one seems able to fix it. And yet in the first verse of our text here, we read about the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And that immediately gives us hope. Now, the context of this is that John the Apostle has been taken up into the throne room of God. We have been, during these Sundays of Eastertide, uh, looking at different passages that relate to the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And one of them brought us into Isaiah chapter 7, where we were already in the throne room of God. And here we see a lot of similar imagery, but we see some new things that we don't find in the Old Testament. Because they weren't ready for them yet. So we read, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and without. A scroll written within and without. It's in the right hand of the one on the throne, which means that this is a symbol of his power and his intent. You remember in in Psalms it says, if I forget uh, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. That's, that's something that we have a picture of both power and authority and kind of skill and intent all rolled up in this idea of the right hand. And in it is a scroll rolled up 
And inside and outside, there's writing. That's unusual. And you might say, why? I mean, aren't they trying to make really great use of paper when it's a lot more expensive? Well, you might think that. I mean, you take a piece of paper now, your regular white rectangular hammer mill or Dunder Mifflin stock or something, you can write on the front because it's bright and it's flat and smooth. Flip it over, it's exactly the same. Well, with papyrus or before that with vellum, animal skin-based things, it wouldn't be the same on the front and the back. The back would be like the inside of your, your English muffin, nooks and crannies and all these things. It would be hard to write on it. So this is a strange thing to see. Also, because it's a sealed document, writing on the back would be odd as well, because now some of it can be seen perhaps from the outside. He sees that there's writing inside and out. But I think the main reason we're given that detail is because that means there's no more room to write anything else. This document is full. This document is complete. Some of the the, uh, books of the Bible, book of Acts, for example, the book of Luke, seem to be uh, limited by the size of the scroll that you could buy to write it initially on and to copy it on. Just like the the length of an album is determined by how much they could fit on both sides of a record and then later on a CD. So that's something odd about the scroll in the right hand. Inside and outside, there's writing. Another thing that's odd is the way that it is sealed. You know about a wax seal. It would be a a little glob of red. If you've got friends that are like fancy or hipsters and they invite you to their wedding, maybe there even is a wax seal on it. They, They melt the little thing and smooge it on there and then put a stamp in it and there's an impression of it and then you open it up and feel all old timey and Downton Abbey and stuff. But, but the idea of the seal we don't get is that even though anyone would have the strength to pop open a seal, it's just made of wax, to do so tells the world that you have the authority to break that seal. It was a very big deal, especially with the idea of a Roman seal. If someone who lacked the authority to break the Roman seal broke it, that was an act of treason. They could be put to death just for doing that one little thing. And yet this document, it's sealed with an infinitely higher authority, the authority of heaven, not of Rome. And it's not sealed once, but seven times. The way to picture it, of course, is a rolled up document and the flat part that you would begin to unroll with all the way down it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It is sealed and you would have to break seven in a row. We get a little behind the scenes of this back in Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel, the prophet, is told, but you, Daniel, you shall shut up the words and seal up the scroll until the time of the end. And I don't think that it is a coincidence that now... In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, someone brings out a scroll and it is sealed up. And the idea is, who is going to open it? See, this is the the key, I think, to understanding Revelation. And it's self-evident, but it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, that the word revelation, which translates the Greek apocalypsis, where we get apocalypse, John's apocalypse is sometimes what the book is called, it means the opening up, the uncovering or unveiling or if it's a scroll we're talking about the unrolling it means opening up and so when you see books and conferences and seminars and things that are called like revelation unlocked or revelation uncovered it doesn't make sense the uncovering uncovered I got to read a book this thick to find out how to uncover a book that's already called The Uncovering? Well, you have to go into it and just understand how apocalyptic literature works, what the numbers mean and such. So what does it mean that there are seven seals? Seven is the number of 
Completion. Some would say perfection. Yeah, okay, but probably better. Completion. It is completely sealed. This is something that couldn't be more sealed. And it's going to be open. This is not an apocryphon, a secret writing, although that was a thing. It's an apocalypse. It's about opening. And so the first and maybe the only order of business in this heavenly throne room is let's get this document open. Let's see the plan of redemption. And and this is something that we've seen throughout the Old Testament in glimpses and shadows and symbols. But now we're going to be able to see it clearly. And yet, pausing what's inside, we have a problem. No one seems to be able to open it. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, we didn't read chapter 4, but if we had, it would have refreshed your mind of the kind of layout here in this vision of the heavenly throne room. At the center, obviously, is the throne and the one on the throne. Around him is four living creatures. They're covered in wings and eyes. It reminds us an awful lot of this seraphim in God's presence, especially because both back in Isaiah and here in Revelation, the seraphim are singing a song continually that says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and they never stop saying it. Then you go out a ring, and you have the 24 elders. More number stuff. Either you're really interested in it or really bored by it. But the number 12 in the Bible is the number of election. There's 12 tribes and 12 patriarchs in the Old Covenant. There are 12 apostles in the New Covenant community. And so this is kind of the the personification, the picture of all of God's elect people from all of redemptive history. And there they are, representatives of all these people worshiping God. They have thrones, but they don't use them because they're always falling down on their face and throwing their crowns at the feet of the one on the throne. And then outside of that, you have another ring further out of tons and tons of angels. And then beyond that, in verse 3, we find that we've got everybody, everybody, everything. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Oftentimes in the Bible, there are shorthands for everyone and everything. That's not surprising. It's the story of everyone and everything and how God is its creator and God will ultimately be the redeemer of all. But we see that there are two basic ways that this is conveyed. One is to say the heavens and the earth and the regions under the earth. That's something Paul sometimes says. The other is to say the earth and the sea and everything in them, which kind of reminds us of the creation narrative, how God first forms the dry land and the sea and then creates this expanse to the sky, and then he fills them with creatures. And so to describe everything, all of creation, they'd say the earth and the sea and the heavens and everything in them. And here in in verse uh, 3 and in verse 13, we see a combination of these two things. As if to say, I want to make sure you understand that the call went out, the strong, loud voice of this angel to everyone and everything, anything, anywhere, anyone able to open this scroll. Raise your hand and no hands go up. It's been said that the scroll contains the deed of heaven and earth. I don't find that to be... Uh, part of the, the context here. It seems like we have to bring that to the text. This is a covenant document, and it is a document of redemption. And it should call our minds back, perhaps, to the book of Ruth. Remember how Ruth's husband died? 
She comes back with Naomi to Israel to find that their ancestral lands are no longer their lands. They're in poverty. They're in trouble. What they need is a redeemer. They need a kinsman redeemer, someone to come and to redeem. And it winds up being Boaz. It's a lovely story. You should read it if you haven't. I love it. But what we find is two criteria for this kinsman redeemer. He has to be a close relative. He has to be a family member. And he's got to have the price. The price needed to buy the fields and redeem. So that's what we need here. Who can open this up? It's someone who has both a clear connection to, is a near kinsman of, all of these people who are in need of redemption and has the price in hand. And now when the call goes out, you say, well, the people nearest to the middle circle, they seem like the most likely candidates, right? The one on the throne or the Holy Spirit. They can't. They can't open it. Why? Because they're not a kinsman of Adam and all of us who come from Adam. But what about the four living creatures? Definitely not. You don't want to be the near kinsman of them. They've got like a face of an ox or like the human face and the body of an eagle. No, 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 no. I'll pass. What about the angels? Also the same thing. The elders? Well, they are kinsmen. They're us. But they don't have the price that would be needed to redeem. In fact, even if they shed their own blood, they could only pay for their own sins and that not even to their own salvation. And so there is no one who can do it. And this hits the Apostle John really hard. And we read in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. I remember the first time I really read the book of Revelation. It was, it was when there was a lot of kind of end times hoopla going on in the church. And I'm like, I'm going to read this thing for myself. And I remember getting to that part and thinking, that's a little much, John. You're weeping you know how this is going to go. Why are you getting so caught up in the moment? You know that, that Jesus wins. You were there and saw the risen Christ. Well, Jesus wept when Lazarus died, knowing momentarily he was going to raise him from the dead. He weeps because everything is so irreparably broken. And he sees the effects of it. That's what's happening here with John. I mean, the story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption. We're created in the image of God. And, and, you know, you think creation, fall, redemption, the fall is the part that should make us sad, and the other two parts should make us happy, but ultimately, they should all make us cry if we think about them long enough. Think about creation being made in God's image and entrusted with taking care of all of creation. Think about what we could have been. Think about what we could have done, what we should have been. Everything we could have done with these capacities to create, to create and invent and write poetry, and and do mathematics, and all the things that all the other creatures can't do, and instead of using it to God's glory, bent them back toward ourselves, and brought a curse on the earth. That ought to bring a tear to our eyes. And when we think of the fall, and how completely ruined everything became, when we talk about the total depravity of man, we don't mean that every person is as bad as they could be. You should see how bad Sean could be, if you really leaned into it. No, it means that Every area of life is touched by sin. Every area of me is touched by it and needs to be redeemed. So there's no area of me left that's untouched where I could use it to open up the scroll. It is impossible. John here weeps because the the future of the church is in doubt at this moment. And he sees that the world is broken all around. If you read chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, before they go up into the heavenly visions... 
It's a series of letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And each one is not overly encouraging. Two of them, Jesus has nothing good to say at all. Yikes. Two of them, he has nothing bad to say, but those are the churches that are struggling and being persecuted and they're they're dwindling. And then the other three are just kind of like C minus, maybe. And looking at this, he must have been thinking, oh, woe is us. What can we do to right this ship? And just in that moment, in chapter 4, we read, And then I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then we read about these Four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full with eyes that are uh, before them and behind them. And they continually cry out, holy, 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 day and night, never ceasing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, Now we're getting somewhere. He's reminded he's still on the throne. And then he sees, oh, there's a plan. There's the plan, and yet no one can open the package. And he begins to weep out of just brokenness and sorrow. But then comes the wonderful words of one of the elders. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He has conquered. He is qualified. And even just calling him the lion of the tribe of Judah... The Lion of the tribe of Judah is a call back all the way to Genesis. We're in the last book of the Bible. We're going back to the first. Genesis 49, as he blesses his sons, Israel, Jacob, says to to Judah, he says, you're a lion and the scepter will never depart from your line. He's going to be a king forever. And Jesus is in that line. He's qualified. He is the son of David, the great king who slew Goliath. Yes, He can do it. If anyone can open the the thing that that needs all the power and all the authority and all the might, it's this lion. He's the the son of David and the root of David, which is a a mind puzzle. I mean, Jesus used it as such as a riddle. They tried to trap him. And he said, all right, I'll answer your question. If you tell me this, how is it that if the Messiah is the son of David, David calls the Messiah my Lord? And they're like, "Uh, we don't know. And he was like, yeah, I didn't think so. Bye. This is the guy who can open it. And as he turns to look at this lion, he must have been expecting something amazing, something powerful, something bone-rattling and even frightening. And yet, we see between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent to look upon all the earth. Wow. This is what we want to do with the book of Revelation. It's not that hard to figure out once again. What happens here? He wants to see the lion and he sees a lamb. This could have been incredibly disappointing to any prophet who came before, but John understands it. Now, let's take apart the the elements of the image. Seven horns, seven again complete. Horns mean power. This is an all-powerful lamb. In fact, throughout Zechariah, Daniel, anywhere you find horns in prophetic literature or apocalyptic literature, it's always power. Then seven eyes. Eyes indicating seeing all, knowing all. 
This is a picture of a lamb who is omnipotent and omniscient, knows all, all powerful. This is what we want to do with the book of Revelation. Don't follow anybody's teachings and they're like, okay, now this is where you find the attack helicopters. And then to understand this, you need to find the hidden QR code and Gorbachev's birthmark or whatever. No, it's, it's right there for you to see. Seven horns, seven eyes. And, and the, the whole trinity involved, the spirit, the father, he, the son takes the, the scroll from his hand, omniscient, uh, all-knowing. This is how he can begin every one of these letters with, I know, I know your heart, I know your situation, I know your struggles, I know all of it, and he's all-powerful, which is how he can give all these promises and guarantees, and he can say to those who overcome, it will be given to you. Not I'll try to, but it will be. He's all-powerful. But oddly enough, the fact that the lamb has seven eyes and seven horns is not the strangest thing about it. It's the fact that it has been slain. And, and it would be slain in the way described in Leviticus. It's throat cut from one side to the other with a very sharp knife in a way that caused minimal suffering to the animal. But that would be a lot of blood on this white wool. What a horrific image. And, and, and you think for a moment, hold on, he's alive, but he's slain. Oh, what could that mean? Give me the New York Times and I'll figure out what's going on in the Middle East right now. No, it's, an, it's a beautiful picture that Jesus Christ died. He was slain on our behalf, but now he is risen. He has conquered. And you go, what a weird way to conquer. To be slain? Even to those of us who know the story of Christ on the cross, when you translate it into this Old Testament sacrificial language and picture a lamb with its throat cut, it still seems so strange for that to be the winning move. And yet it was. C.S. Lewis, I think, beautifully illustrates this when he, he makes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all the Narnia stories, he makes Aslan a lion, the Christ figure. And you expect, or at least I do, every time I read it or every time I watch a, a film adaptation of it, when he goes in to rescue Edmund, who is, is basically now the property of the Satan figure, the witch, he goes into the midst of all of these wicked creatures and, and they're all mocking him. And, and the fact that he's pictured as a lion makes me think, oh, just rip them apart. Tear them to pieces. And he could have. Even though Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, had a history of saying, turn the other cheek, he could have destroyed everyone there at the crucifixion. He says as much. I could call on 10,000 angels. That's just one myriad. There's myriads of myriads here. He could have called on 10,000 angels, and that means they would have come and delivered him, and he would have remained righteous. But he came to deliver us, to give us his righteousness, not just to maintain it for himself. And now someone in God's presence understands that throughout the Bible, we have this thing called progressive revelation, a little bigger view, a little bigger view, a little bigger view of who this Messiah will be and who this God on the throne is. Pictures of power and strength and might and regal authority. Finally, we have someone in God's presence who understands what's going on because he lived it. He can hear the lion has the power and see a lamb and it makes perfect sense. He can hear he has conquered and see he's been slain and it makes perfect sense because he stood there with his arm around the Virgin Mary and watched Jesus of all the apostles. John stood there and watched him die. And then John was amongst the first to see him having risen from the dead. 
He understood what was going on. And when he had taken the scroll, verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is where we get the goofy Looney Tunes picture that when you go to heaven, you sit on a cloud and strum a harp, and it makes a lot of people not be excited about the hereafter. That sounds boring. Again, don't take these things literally. This is not a literal book. This is an apocalyptic book. You will not spend eternity strumming a harp, social distancing from the lamb because he's creepy with his seven eyes. No, Jesus will come down and dwell in our midst. That is our hope. And on the new earth, there will be eternal praise of God. That's in keeping with all of scripture. Salvation songs happen again and again and again, just spontaneously when God saves his people. The song of Deborah, this great redemption moment They defeat the enemies, and she begins to sing this wonderful song. Or the song of Miriam, or the song of Moses, which is kind of sampled in Revelation 15. It all foreshadows Jesus and the atonement. And we see in the ugliness of this image, of this seven-eyed, seven-horned, bloody lamb, that our understanding of the atonement, that God's wrath was poured out on the Son instead of on us, is biblical. And I have to emphasize that again and again because there are continually waves of quote-unquote scholarship or even people leading churches who would say, no, 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 that was added later. That idea is not in keeping with the Bible. Jesus didn't go on the cross to take the wrath of God. How barbaric and outdated is that idea? No, he went to the cross to teach us how to love each other. That's stupid. I mean, right? If I wanted to show my family how much I love them, and I got myself killed, that wouldn't really do the job, would it? No, I wouldn't be there for them any longer. Unless, by getting myself killed, I saved them. It's like if I shoved them out of the way and got hit by a train, suddenly the sacrifice means something. Or others would say that it's, it's a moral example, not just to show how much God loves us, but to show us how to love one another. And again, unless the death accomplished something, it's a bad example. Just... Throw it all away in order to show this. This is like something that a teenage girl would write in her diary and immediately cross out because it sounds dumb. I want to show Brad how much I love him, so I'll hurl myself into the sea. No, too dramatic. But Jesus accomplished something in his death, and so it is an example for us. And it does show us how much he loves us. Because he's the only kinsman redeemer who could open the thing and carry out the will of God. He's the only possible executor of this document. Only God in the flesh, the near kinsman of Adam, whose blood can wash clean all of mankind. And in response, what do we see them doing but singing? And it's a new song. And you got to imagine, if in the 6th century BC, we're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in the 1st century AD, we're still singing, without ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That when someone's like, I got a new song, there is much rejoicing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we just sang it a few minutes ago at the beginning of our service. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy indeed, this is what we call a doxology, a a sudden, spontaneous song of praise to the God who saves us. 
And it's all rooted in this backwards idea of the kingdom of God, where the first or last, the last of first, the greatest is a little child, etc., etc. Because the world has its ideas of what power and strength and life look like. In fact, one of those two churches about which Jesus has nothing good to say is the church in Sardis. And it's the one that everyone thinks is the church of what's happening now. There's a lot going on. It has a reputation for life. And yet, Jesus says, you are dead. Inside, there's death. You need true life, not just the appearance of it, not just a lot of activity. And in the same way, the world thinks we know what life looks like, what power looks like, and it's all turned on its head. The one church, Philadelphia, where Jesus praises them the highest and has nothing to say negative about them, and the other one being Smyrna, they're struggling, they're small, they're being persecuted, but they are not turning from the faith. Jesus saves on the basis not of his power and might, riding him with a sword in his hand, not in his first advent, but rather on the basis of his sacrificial death. Only when we understand that and embrace it and accept it can we be saved. Now, I recently lost my father, most of you know that, and I was thinking about how do I know this guy is, is with God. I need, I need the comfort of knowing. And, and you can ask yourself, how do you know someone was saved? And answer with questions like, well, he took us to church every week. He made sure we went. But that's not it. A lot of people do that without being saved. You say it's because he, he really showed that he loved us and he prayed with me. And that's getting closer. But even that, a lot of people could do it just to do the outward like the Pharisees. I'll tell you how I know he was saved. Because on his deathbed... When he could barely speak, he could still praise God. And when I asked him, near the end, on the phone, I said, Dad, how's your faith? Are you struggling with your faith? And he said, Zach, all this has made my faith stronger. This is someone who understands the upside down nature of the kingdom of God and what real power and life look like. The night before he died, we were singing songs of praise in this bedroom where he's in a hospital bed wasting away. And if you walked in not knowing anything about it, it might look like a room of death. It was a room of life. And walking into the church in Sardis, you might go, wow, this place is alive. And Jesus says, no, there's no life here. Life has to come from putting all of your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the all-powerful, all-knowing Lamb of God. I think of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That body and soul, in life and in death, I belong not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with the power of his blood has made full satisfaction for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father, not one hair can fall from my head, yea, and that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and by his Holy Spirit I am given assurance of everlasting life, and made sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we see played out in this throne room, and that's what we understand is hammered home on the cross and opened up for all to accept on Easter morning. Verse 11. We're near the end. Then I looked, 
And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I'll take that over the veneer of strength that the world projects or the illusion of life that even the church sometimes buys into any day. Myriads of myriads. What's that? It's more precise than it sounds, actually. A myriads, 10,000. Myriads of myriads is 100 million. That's an awful lot. You, know, you take these, these numbers, these symbolic numbers, start uh, interacting with them, especially multiplying them, and it just kind of compounds what they mean, right? So later in the book of Revelation, there's 144,000. They are the elect from every people, tribe, tongue, etc., you're taking 12, the number of election, times 12, times 10, times 10, times 10. Well, what's 10? If 12 is election and 7 is perfection, 10 is a multitude. Well, this is a multitude's multitude's multitude, multitude, multitude. 10 to the 7th power. If you were going to count 100 million angels and you could count one per second, it would still take you three years, even if you didn't stop to eat or sleep. Now, obviously, he doesn't count them. He just looks out and says, that looks like eh, myriad, myriad to me. But it's unspeakably many creatures now praising God. The call went out through every ring from the center where the throne is all the way out to the bottom of the sea and to the furthest reaches of space. Can anyone open this scroll? And came back nothing but crickets and echoes. And now that the scroll is opened by the Lamb, out goes the praise in a similar fashion. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's a sevenfold list of the excellencies of our Savior. And it goes out from the presence of God into every single dark corner of his creation and to every creature. And it goes through all of time, from eternity past to forever. Or as it's put here, Ionos ton Ionon, which means the ages of ages. Myriads of myriads for ages of ages. Why? Because he is due this kind of praise. The God who created everything looked at it and said, that's tov ma'od. That's very good. That's the top shelf stuff. I am very pleased with what I've done here. And everything was working perfectly for his glory. And then we shattered it. Like throwing a brick through a safety glass door. And that, that shattering, just like even though it was a small hole in the middle, it shattered and fractured and spiderwebbed all the way up to the corners and all the way down to the bottom. Everything was affected. And we started looking, instead of looking to God, to human power. Just take the Roman world in which John was living at the time. Caesar is a god. That's very iffy that anyone even thought Caesar was really a god. But you had to pay at lift service. And when he did things for you because you trusted entirely in him, you had to say things like, oh, you are certainly a mighty God. In fact, let's rename our city uh, Neo-Caesarea just for you. That's the way that people approach things. Human power. We do the same thing today. Only instead of saving a city, you just have to, I don't know, have a lot of views on YouTube. We lift up people. We celebrate them. We treat them like they're gods. And this is why everyone's getting more cynical because none of these people can fix the broken glass. It's impossible. It's irreparable. Only the lamb who was slain, who was dead, but behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. In his words, 
slain to restore what was shattered. He receives complete authority. Hey, did you ever hear wild levels of providence where Mimi starts the service with a scripture in her, in her invocation and I'm planning to end the service by closing my sermon with that same scripture? Hebrews 2. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We look around now and we don't see at present everything in subjection under his feet, but it is. And he is working out that story of creation, fall, and redemption so that in the end all things will be made new. And with all of these myriads of angels and all the 24 elders and the four living creatures and every creature in the very depths of the earth all the way to the, the far reaches of the heavens, the Shemayim out the sky, the, the, the area above the earth, with all of them we praise him for his work in creating and redeeming. And this last verse here brings it all home, I think. Verse 14. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's a bit of an understatement, I suppose, but that's what happened. Once again, they fell down. They said amen. They worshipped, and I'm sure they were worshipping even more zealously than they had been before. This is what we see in the scriptures. I told my son, don't touch that. It'll cut you. That's too broken to interact with. And Jesus came, and he, he fixed the whole of creation the shalom had been fractured, the everything as it should be ness, that's what shalom means, and he is in the work of fixing it, and he calls us, go ahead and touch it, because you are now my hands and feet, and where you put your hands, and where you bring my word, and where you show my love, we see all these cracks beginning to fade away, and things being restored to how they should be. And the angels said amen, and the four living creatures said amen, and the people of Judson Baptist Church said, amen. let us go and be the people who are in the outermost circle. We're still in the world, or occasionally up above it, and maybe some of you are down in the depths of the sea here and again, but remember that we are to be about the work of redemption, to bring the gospel message, to proclaim the coming of the kingdom Everywhere we go, I quote it too often, but one of my favorite quotes of all time is Abraham Kuyper. There's not one thumb breadth of the universe about which the Lord Jesus does not say, it is mine. Remember that everywhere you go, it belongs to Jesus. All we're doing is announcing what is already true. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful image in Revelation 5. We thank you that it seems so difficult to understand. And then when you give us insight and we, we read the rest of scripture, it falls into place quite easily. Forgive us, Lord, for overcomplicating it sometimes. We pray that instead of, of twisting it all around and trying to find secret codes and, and modern headlines, we would simply live this out. Fall down and worship you. Sing your praises forever, recognizing that you are holy, 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 the one who was and is and is to come. And that only you could open the scroll. And now that it is open, Lord, we pray that we would be your instruments of restoring what was broken. We pray that we would be willingly those who would take our crowns, whatever you have given us, and throw them at your feet and make them subservient to you. That, Lord, we would, we would be part of your redemption plan. Now that it has been opened, the seal's broken, 
that which was hidden and sealed up in the book of Daniel, now laying before us, Lord, let us not squander it. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.